0: Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 93. Speak and Destroy is the first podcast featuring interviews about Metallica. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest this episode is Dino Cazares, guitarist, co-founder, and band leader of Fear Factory. I first discovered Fear Factory in an issue of Metal Maniacs Magazine in 1995 when the record d was released. I may have had some vague awareness of their first album, Soul of a New Machine, uh, released in 92, but d is the record that I went out and bought, and it absolutely blew my mind. As someone who fell in love with metal in the mid to late 80s, uh, was into new wave and punk rock and all sorts of other things, and got into the hardcore scene in the early 90s, You know, it was rare, like it remains today, when a record can come along, when you're so immersed in that music and that culture, when a record comes along and just absolutely floors you and changes the game. You know, people who are listening to this podcast who are fans of this music, I'm sure you can point to a lot of the same records I would. Slaughter of the Soul from At the Gates, which was right around the same time, which is insane. You know, when you think about all the... Important crucial metal records that came out in, say, 1986. To think about 1995 as another crucial moment, Fear Factory, nothing else sounded like it. You know, you can point to Godflesh, Ministry, different death metal bands, you know, groups that had elements of what we associate with the Fear Factory sound. But that thing that just crystallized with Dino. Burton C. Bell on vocals, Raymond Herrera on drums, and at that time, new bass player Christian Old Wolbers. With D-Manufacture is just one of the most important metal records of all time, and one of my favorite records of any genre, period. I got to go see them perform on the D-Manufacture tour. It was, I suppose, kind of an off-date. wasn't really part of a big tour. It was Fear Factory headlining in Atlanta, Georgia, where I was briefly living at the time at the Masquerade with Marauder opening. And Fear Factory was just incredible. That night, it was one of the best shows I've ever seen. So my relationship with the band as a journalist, as a friend, someone in the music business, whatever you want to say, however you want to describe that, actually began when the band was in the studio recording the follow-up to Demanufacture, 1998's Obsolete, which became a big commercial success for them. You know, the band played MTV Spring Break, you know the record went gold in the United States, uh, which d manufacture was pretty commercially successful for a metal record around the world as well. But uh, Obsolete, Obsolete really blew the band up. I was sent on assignment to write about Fear Factory for some magazine. I think it might have been Circus at the time, and got to spend time with them when they were in the studio making the record. I found all four guys to be extremely personable. Uh, You know, great to interview, and it was overall a a really cool experience. I also got to meet another friend and and colleague there in person, a guy named Vinny Ceccolini, who's a longtime writer about hard rock and metal and professional wrestling. And Vinny and I got to hang out while we were there. And there's just something about Dino. He is uh, very outgoing. He's one of those ambassadors for metal type People and but he also really connects, you know, he listens and pays attention to what the other person's talking about, and that's uh, you know, oftentimes rare in this thing of ours. So, you know, I really liked uh, that whole experience of, of getting to, to see and hear them working on Obsolete. I saw them playing Ozfest at some point around that era, you know I, I went to go see them, I believe, at Bogart's in Cincinnati, probably when they were touring Obsolete. In 2001, when I moved to Southern California, they were touring DigiMortal, uh, and I saw them, might have actually been with Machine Head, and, you know, said hello to everybody, and, and got to spend some time with Dino, and, and then he just, you know, Dino of all those guys became somebody that I just would run into and see, you know, he's at shows, he's out and about, but uh, we've just remained, you know, super friendly over the years, He was out of Fear Factory for a couple of records. Started the band Divine Heresy, uh, among many other projects. Had success with that in the metal realm. And while he was gone from the band, in 2004, I was managing the band Throwdown, which I began doing, I believe, in January 2004, and, and, you know... uh, Still managed today, actually. And Throwdown, coming right off of the 2004 Ozfest, had the opportunity to do a tour that was Lamb of God and Fear Factory co-headlining. I think it was a co-headlining tour. It might have been early enough for Lamb that it was Fear Factory. I'm pretty sure it was a co-headlining tour. Fear Factory, Lamb of God, Children of Bodom. Rest in peace, Alexi. And Throwdown. And, you know, it was definitely strange to see them without Dino, given that his style of playing guitar and just, you know, all these things he innovated really are such an essential part of that sound. I mean, Raymond, I, I believe, is also an essential part of, of creating that sound. And of course, Bert's vocals and, you know, and it was definitely still cool seeing them at a few of those shows. I actually flew out to New York City and went to the show at, I believe, Irving Plaza, uh, you know, to hang out with the Throwdown guys. But You know, again, it was always nice to say hello to the Fear Factory dudes. But I was among the many fans who were absolutely thrilled, not only that Dino and Bert were back together in a new version of the band, but with the record that they released in 2010 called Mechanize. Just an incredible Fear Factory album. I would say Mechanize is my second favorite Fear Factory record behind Demanufacture. And I celebrate the whole catalog, as they say. You know, if your factory's not a a band known for making bad records, I think that second record without Dino, Transgression, is probably my least favorite, probably most people's least favorite, and even that has some bangers on it, as they say. But Mechanize is just unstoppable. And that's the record with the great Gene Hoagland, uh, Byron from Strapping Young Lad, who carried over from the Dino List lineup. But that record ruled. And Fear Factory, as we will as we talk about in this episode, toured a great deal with Metallica in that era in 2010, uh, Scandinavia, you know, a bunch of places in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, uh, I think Japan. Uh, you'll hear Dino and I talk about it in this conversation, and he's got great stories from that. But Dino also has great stories. He's kind of a metal historian going all the way back to being a young kid uh, and moving to L.A. and... Getting into metal and seeing a lot of these bands in their formative years, and most crucially, working at a sandwich shop, you know, right across the street from the Palladium in Hollywood. And this is a place where, in the early to mid 80s, you know, guys like Dave Mustaine were regulars at that place, and Dino would give them free sandwiches and beer and pick their brain about the heavy metal music industry. Again, you'll hear us talk about that. And that's actually a story, you know, finding out what a massive Megadeth fan I am. It's actually a story that Dino told me all the way back in 1997 or 98 when I was uh, visiting them in the studio during Obsolete. So this is a story that I've remembered for a long time. But uh, we talk about it again here. Super cool. And he just has so much insight into uh, playing guitar. We talk a lot about the right hand of Headfield, which comes up on the podcast a lot, but I don't know that anyone's been able to speak to it as authoritatively as Dino does here. So, yeah, The Industrialist was a good Fear Factory record in 2012. GeneXus was an even better Fear Factory record in 2015. And I can say, as of the time of this recording, having had an opportunity to spend some time with the album for quite a while, that Aggression Continuum, the 2021 Fear Factory record, is another classic. Uh, time will tell whether it turns out to be the last Fear Factory record to feature Burton and C. Bell on vocals. As of the time of this recording, Bert is not a member of the band, which is a whole heavy metal soap opera you can follow on the internet. But um, Dino uh, remains actively searching for a new singer. And again, that's something else we'll talk about here, too. So I realize this intro is uh, quite a bit longer than usual, but uh, what can I say? I love Fear Factory, and I was uh, excited to have Dino on just because he's an old friend and somebody I enjoy talking to and someone that I knew had a lot of cool Metallica stories and insights. Uh, one thing that I am definitely learned for the first time that was also a Eureka moment that just made so much sense is you're going to hear Dino break down Specifically, how Metallica shaped the sound of Fear Factory. So, I hope you dig this episode. It was a lot of fun doing it. Here he is, Dino, from Fear Factory. This is Speak and Destroy.
1: was a, you know, a small kid living in a town called El Centro, California, which is um, about three and a half hours uh, outside of east. Of, sorry east of Los Angeles, not East LA, but we're talking like past the Tijuana border on the California side. Uh, the closest city to Mexico, w- which we we're only like six miles away, was a place called Mexicali, which was across the border. It was the capital of Baja California. And there was a million people. But we lived six miles on the California side and we were, uh, you know, small, uh, a large agricultural area. So when I grew up, it was either Mexican or white. There wasn't a lot of, you know, uh, there wasn't a lot of other races because there wasn't a lot of black people. There wasn't a lot of Armenian people. I'm trying to describe just how it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because California, rich,
0: you know, Persians, and, Asians.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I, didn't, I never seen that. I never even yeah. knew those countries existed when I was a kid, right? I never even seen a. a this is gonna sound kind of weird, and hopefully, I'll, I don't sound too weird saying it. But I've never even seen a a, a a homosexual person. I never even seen that. I didn't even know. I heard of it. I never even knew it, right? But I was living in a small town in a ranch with my family and stuff like that. I was nine years old when I seen ACDC on, I want to say either Midnight Special or the Don Kirchner's Rock Concert, one of those things on television. It was about 1975. Mm-hmm. And right there, I was like, holy shit, I saw Angus Young on TV. And right there, I knew what I wanted to do. My dad had dabbled a little bit in guitar. So he get a little bit of guitar here and stuff. You know, my mother was really into the Beatles and all the old 60s music, you know what I mean? Um, 50s and 60s and stuff like that. And but there was one record that was weird that she had in her collection. It was an eight track and it was Alice Cooper. And it had that song, You Can Go to Hell. You can't go. And I was like, wow. And so I put that on because it looked weird. Cover had, I think, like his face was all green or something weird. And so I put it on and I was like, holy shit. So I heard Alice Cooper and ACDC. And then my mind started to go like, okay, like what the fuck else is like this? And then, you know, my oldest and brothers and sisters turned me on into, you know, Black Sabbath, uh, other ACDC records, you know, Clash, Sex Pistols, um, Pink Floyd, Zeppelin, Scorpions, you know, and it was like a sponge. All this stuff was just going, all this information was just going in my brain. And I'm like, I got to play guitar. I got I to gotta kind of create the sound that that's coming to me, right? So I kind of like picked up the acoustic guitar, but it wasn't It was. It was it wasn't that great. It wasn't until I was like 14, my mother bought me an electric guitar and an amplifier. So the first thing I went to was ACDC, you know, all that stuff, learning all those riffs. And then it progresses from there, right? So you go to like ACDC and you go to Black Sabbath and then you go to Eddie Van Halen, you know, Van Halen. And then it starts to get heavier, Iron Maiden, right? And then, you know, more Scorpions, like the later Scorpions with Blackout Record, yeah. you know, ACDC Back in Black, and all those records that were coming out at that time. I was like, it was just a sponge. I was like, I was like, I gotta learn all those riffs. So I started learning all those riffs. I started, I started to meet like minded guys in high school that love that stuff, and we started to ditch school. And we go to you know one of our friends' house. This guy named Brian McAlpine. We went to high school together. He's in a band called Psychotic Waltz. And uh, I don't know if anybody ever heard of them. They're pretty. No, but it's a great name. <laughs> Psychotic Waltz. They were like very intricate fucking metal. It was amazing stuff. And so me and him would ditch high school, and I would go to his house. He was much more advanced than I was, so I'd watch him play. Just you know, then we were we were getting into all the Jewish priests, you know. Uh, and then, and then it just started getting heavier. heavier. Then it was like Metallica. We're like, oh, fuck. Metallica, what the fuck is this? Because it was faster than a lot of stuff that was coming out. Sure, you had Accept with Fast as a Shark. Yep. But when you heard Metallica. A lot of people say was,
0: Fast as a Shark was like the first speed metal song. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I heard that. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that was cool. But I don't know, something about Metallica, the whole record, you instantly fell in love with it, right? It was a natural progression to get to whatever it was, 1982 or 1983, when my first Metallica record came out, it was a natural progression to get there. And I was just like, fuck, it, was, it floored me. It floored me. And I had it on vinyl. Kill them all on vinyl, right? Yeah. And it just floored it floored the shit out of me. I was like, holy fuck, I gotta learn this. And I was like, you know, in my bedroom trying to learn all the riffs and stuff like that. But I didn't have my sp- my picking technique really that well developed. So I did a few things I was just thinking some weird stuff because, you know, my family was very into baseball. They were very athletic at the time. And my brother played professional baseball. And my dad played professional baseball in Mexico. Right. Yeah. And so there was always, you know, weird weights around and stuff like that. So my brother would wear ankle weights. And so I had these ankle weights and I put them on my wrist. Wow. Ankle weights. Because there was no, no wrist weights back then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. is just ankle weight. So you put it on your ankle. I put them on my wrist. Right. And then I put electrical tape around my fingers. So it would be hard to press down the neck to make a fret. Right. And so I just started going. Like, it's like, ah, oh. and it would burn my forearm. You could feel your muscles burning. Like, and then over time, you know, when I would take those off, I was like, durr, 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 the fuck? <laughs> I developed, I developed the speed. Right. Yeah. For me to learn Metallica. And then all of a sudden, you had the darker side. Slayer came in. And I was like, oh, fuck. And it just floored me again. And I was like, got into that. And then, of course, it progressed into more thrash, Exodus. You know, by that time, it was like 1984, 85, when all those records, you know, Ride and Lightning was out and Exodus's first record was out and all that stuff. And I was just, that was it. I was a thrash kid. I just learned all those riffs. But it wasn't until about 1988, I, was, I moved to Hollywood in 1984. Oh, here's a good story. I moved to Hollywood in 1984. I was 17 years old. And I was working at a sandwich shop on the Sunset Strip. Mm-hmm. It was right across the street from the Hollywood Palladium, where they had all, all kinds of shows, right? So And down in Caddy Corny from there, there was uh, the movie lots, but where they would film a lot of the television shows. Yeah. Like Laverne and Shirley, uh, Days of Our Lives, which was like soap operas. And then just a little bit away from there was SIR Studios, where they actually had the studios and rehearsal studios and recording studios. Yeah. So a lot of bands were going there to record. A lot of the stuff we're talking about is still there. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Yes. And so I would, you know, working at the sandwich shop that was down the street from all that stuff it was, it was perfect spot, right? Because, Everybody would come in. Like I would meet. Hey, there's Faith from Days of Our Lives. I remember my mother watching that show, and I used yeah. to think that chick was hot. Here I am, fucking making her a sandwich. I was like, oh my god. I was just like, she's so beautiful, right? And I was like, hey man, I fucking. Well, I don't even. I didn't even know what to say to her, but I did say, hey, I watch your show. I enjoy it. She's like, okay, thank you. You know, she's like very nice. Yeah. Make them sandwiches. In 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 comes in was it well the guys from laverne and shirley squig squiggly Lenny and squiggy it was Lenny and squiggy yeah they actually came walking in yeah. and i was like holy shit michael mccain dude and also the big ragu walked in too <laughs> the big ragu i don't remember his name but he the big ragu yeah i, I think he liked shirley or something like that right yeah, yeah anyways yeah. he came walking in i made him sandwich <laughs> and i would tell these people y'all yeah, like your stuff and then motley crew guys would come in like Nikki six and Tommy Lee, and I would tell him stuff. I like your, like your music, blah, blah, blah. But I never asked anybody for autographs. I just wasn't that guy. I don't know. I just didn't do that. But I was, but I gave a lot of them free sandwiches and free beer. And they were like, oh, cool. Thanks, man. I don't know. Maybe they kept coming in because they knew that I might be there and give them free stuff and free beer. I don't know. But I know that But the one guy that really affected me was when Dave Mustaine walked in. Dave Mustaine walked in. And I was working at night, actually. And he came walking in. So I had more time to talk to him because I wasn't working that busy rush hour yeah. lunchtime, right? So I had more time to talk to him. And uh, he came in and I was like, I was like, oh my God, like fucking Dave Mustaine. I was like freaked out. I was like, man. And he had, I think he had just left Metallica and wow. it was just before the, you know, I think it was just before the, the killing is my business. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say about 85. I'm not sure what year that director came in.
0: I think, I think Killing It My Business was 85. So,
1: yeah. yeah. So it was just before that came out. And I started talking to him. And I gave him free food and free beer. And he was very appreciative. He actually sat down in the place and ate it. And ate the sandwich. So I was thinking, like, maybe I should go ask him questions. Because here I am. I'm, like, 18 years old, 19 years old. And I was like, I need some advice on how to, like, start a band. What to do. And so he... He actually gave me a lot of advice, believe it or not. He, yeah. told, he, he told me how to network. And he told me how to, um, you know, go to shows and try to try to talk to other musicians. Try to, t- you know, just try to network. He also told me about this thing called the music connection, where yeah. bands used to put in their ads, yeah. say they were looking for a band and stuff like that. And so he turned me on to that, and then um, and then I turned him on to my sister because he was selling weed at the time. And so I turned him on to my sister because my sister would buy weed from him. She would buy weed from him, stain. So yeah. we kind of have like a little thing going on, right? Yeah. And so, and I would pick it. It's a reciprocal
0: pick- relationship and all that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so he, uh, I'm not sure if he likes me talking about it, but it is what it is. No, nah, it I mean, happened. He, st- he
0: still talks about how he used to sell weed back then. And, yeah. if, and isn't it crazy to think how even then, you know, when you think about everything that you've accomplished since then, everything that Mustaine has accomplished metallica has accomplished even back then in that time in that little bubble and in in that particular scene he already seemed like somebody who'd done it all right like we're just a couple years older than you hasn't put out the first megadeth record yet even but comes in that sandwich shop and you're like this guy knows shit you know like he's yeah i think i
1: think think he's more than a couple years old but but, um (laughs) but uh uh so yeah, yeah you so, know what? I think he's a year the, older the, than all
0: the Metallica guys, actually. So you're
1: right. So he actually, the cool thing about it was he actually, you know, when Killing My Business came out, and he was, they were doing shows, they were doing shows in L.A., and he actually put me on the list. I got to go backstage at one of the shows, and he introduced me to a few people, and blah 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 blah. And I would, I would see him periodically over the years. So about 1985, fast forward 10 years to 1995. Right, we get a tour. It's our second record, d Dave Mustaine brings us on the tour. Right, so it's Megadeth, Corn, Flossum and Jetsum, and Fear Factory opening up. Mm-hmm. Right, and um, so the first day, I was telling everybody in, in the crew and everybody, yeah, Dave Mustaine. I, I bet you Dave Mustaine got us on the tour because he remembers that I gave him sandwiches back in the day. Right? Yeah. yeah. And he's returning favors. <laughs> right. So we all walk into the venue, blah, blah, blah. We see Dave. Right. And I go, Dave, Dave. And he's looking at me and like he didn't know who the fuck I was. I go, Dave, Dave. They go, man, they go, hey, man, remember me? You know, I used to make you sandwiches and stuff like that. And he goes, he looks at me for like, just like he's, you know, trying to you could see his brain working. Right. And He's like, oh, yeah, man, make me a sandwich. And then he walked away. And everybody in my band and crew were like, ah, ha, ha. they were all laughing at me and stuff. And it was, it was a really good tour. It was a really good tour. <laughs> yeah. But but that was a really, really kind of like embarrassing moment for me. Yeah.
0: You're like, I know this guy. He put us on the tour. We go, we go yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. I was bragging about it, you know, bragging about it. And he says, Yeah, yeah, man, make me a sandwich. Yeah, dude. <laughs> But, uh, but uh, you know, Dave Alson remembered. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. surprise me at all. No, I think he was the one that probably wasn't on all the drugs, or maybe he was. I don't know. But I don't think well,
0: and he, he was, and he was he's always been sort of the ambassador for the band, and I think that they they're a nice counterbalance because obviously Mustaine is the driving engine, you know, the songwriter, the leader. But I think when he's got Alson by his side, it's like you know the sharper edges of Mustaine are, are kind of. Smoothed over when you got Alison around, you know what I mean? It's like, oh well.
1: So let me. It's like the seal
0: of approval or something.
1: So let's uh, let's go back. Let's go yeah. back. Let's go back to like 1986, because my first my first heavy tour when I first came. Sorry, my first heavy show when I when I landed in Hollywood, working at the sandwich shop, was my first heavy show was Venom Slayer Exodus.
0: <laughs> was right? that at the Palladium?
1: Hollywood Palladium Okay, yeah. I worshipped Exodus like beyond anything and Slayer I wasn't a Venom fan I was not a Venom fan to me they were like a really bad black metal Motorhead and I just wasn't really into the band I mean somebody might get somebody might get mad at me I mean I, I love Motorhead and they were great musicians but they were just really bad three piece I wasn't into it not at all and I think at the time they might've started beefing with Slayer and Venom beefing with each other who was more satanic or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause the thing was like,
0: and, and, and yeah, and you and I are, are close in age where I got into the thrash bands before I had heard Venom. So by the time I heard Venom, it was kind of like, well, this is like corny. It wasn't fast. It wasn't, you know, and, and it seemed like they, it seemed theatrical. Like they weren't serious about the evil side of it. Didn't have the same yeah. sort of danger to it or whatever. So yeah, I was right.
1: I wasn't right. really into it. I know I know a I, lot I came of to people who them worshiped them. later, but back yeah.
0: at the time, I was like, eh, I don't care.
1: I know a lot of people who worshipped him, worshipped him, but they, they just weren't compared to Slayer and Exodus. They were, just yeah. they just weren't there for me, right? So then the following month in 1986, it was Metallica opening up for Armored Saint at the Hollywood Palladium. That was my second show, literally a month later, right? and so yeah so i went to that legendary tour
0: because i I think that's the one that was wasp armored saint and metallica for a big chunk of it and then as it got further to the west coast there's no more wasp it was just metallica and armored saint right armored saint was technically bigger than metallica at the time yeah
1: yeah they were bigger than Metallica at the time but obviously you could see that a lot of people kind of like left after metallica during that tour i think armored saint might have talked about that but I was still a huge Armored Saint fan. They came out with dudes with swords and armored, <laughs> you know, the full armor. So like, I, I thought that was amazing. But don't get me wrong, Metallica just came out, no t shirts, fucking all ratty hair. Just, you could tell these guys have been on tour forever. You know what I mean? Ripped jeans, just yeah. metallic, uh, I don't know, guitars that kind of like said fuck off on it. And then <laughs> they were just kind of like had this attitude like, this is like, we don't give a fuck. Yeah. We don't need no fucking lights. We're going to come here and just fucking destroy you. And that's kind of like what their attitude was, and it was like, it was epic to see that. It was just epic to see that, and you know, at that point, you know, you knew about all the alcoholic T-shirts, and you know, you're like, yeah, these guys are gonna drink beer and get all fucked up, and just trash the place. And people, it, it, when they hit the stage, you just saw, you know, because back then you gotta realize there's not that many security. You know, people can yeah. go slam pits and people can jump off the fucking tables and whatever, right? You can just do whatever. And so when they came on, it's was just like, but the whole place just erupted. And I was like, fuck. And I was that kid right in the middle of slamming there too, just watching in awe, being like, that's exactly what I want to do. That's exactly what I want to do. And then um, when Amber Saint came on, they had the whole theatrics and I was like really into that. And they're, you know, they were a different style, probably more intricate, And stuff and stuff they were doing at that time, you know what I mean, and uh, not as more melodic vocals and all that. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I was like totally worshiping that too as well. But it was hard not to notice that some people left. Yeah, after Metallica, you know what I mean. Yeah, Um, and that's no disrespect to Armor Saint at all. I still love the band, and those guys are still amazing musicians. Um, And then, and then, literally a month after that. My next tour was Accept. They wow. played the Palladium. Yeah, I was on the um, Metal Heart tour.
0: And these are, and this is just like down the street from your work,
1: <laughs> just across the street. Across the street, <laughs> I there was guys who were working at the Palladium that would come eat across the street. Road crew guys, guys in the band, guys who worked there. They would come over, and if I was working and I caught them at the right time. I would trade them a couple of sandwiches for tickets. Nice. So I get to I got to see a lot of these shows for free.
0: Yeah, so It's like after
1: sy- the- a system of bartering for goods and services, exactly. <laughs> and then and then a month after that, I went to go see George Thorgood. That's amazing. And that and that was more brutal than any any concert I had been to because his, his crowd are like
0: bikers, right? Dude, like up I've never
1: bikers. seen so many bikers and different. <laughs> Type of biker gangs fighting. I mean, it was brutal. <laughs> you got all these beef, you...
0: but they all like George Thorogood.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so like, you there. know when you go to when you go to look with Armored Saint. You know all those thrash concerts. People are slamming. Sure, it gets rough, but people pick you up, right? Yeah. At the George Thorogood, they wanted you down. They wanted to. They wanted to make sure you were dead. You know what I mean? <laughs> and nobody stopped it. It was just. It was just like. Fight after fight after fight, and me and my buddy were just going. This is sick! Like this, it was amazing, (laughs) seeing these big dudes just throwing down with each other. You know, and you you hear the George, and 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 what was going down in the crowd fit with the music. It was like, how do we say? It It was like, it was a theme that just fit together, right? I drink alone, bad to the bone. You know, all that (laughs) shit, and you hear his lyrics. Yeah. right. I drink and alone. Every- yeah, with nobody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just you know, and all that shit. Just people throwing down. I was like, that's one of the fucking best concerts I've ever been to.
0: That's amazing.
1: Until, until I seen Stevie Ray Vaughan.
0: Oh wow! You got to see Stevie.
1: Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yep, twice. Amazing. And yeah. I was like, okay, this is like God to me. This is like God. Yeah. Because you, you, when he played. You saw the passion that he had in his guitar and when he was singing. And his mm-hmm. brother played too, uh, the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. played. Yeah. I know we're going a little off topic here, but no, 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 dude, still, I I
0: love all this stuff too. Fabulous T-Birds, Thorgood.
1: Yeah. Stevie Avon is still fucking, you know, he was a genius. It was sad to see him go the way he did. But so let's go to let's go to 1988 when Metallica and Justice is all for record comes out. Yeah. Right. So, during that recording process, um, I believe they were working on some of the record here in LA. Mm-hmm. I know they were. I know they did some stuff on the East Coast. but yeah. I think they might have been mixed. I think in they there.
0: mixed in the East Coast, right? Yeah, and, here.
1: and so there was a girl who was who was kind of staying with me in Hollywood. Um, she was a friend of mine, and she she did artwork for bands, and she also. She also was a model. And at that time, Jane, uh, she was friends with James Heffield. So Jane, she brought James Heffield a couple of times over to the apartment. Oh, to wow. Our, to our apartment. Yeah. Wow. And so I met James um, very much into Jägermeister, getting crazy, getting drunk. Yeah. And then from James, and from her and James, I met Jim Martin from Faith and War. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So I became really tight with Jim Martin. Um, James kind of mixed the record and they took off. Mm-hmm. right they took they mixed the record in there i didn't see them they went on tour blah, blah blah but that was when that album it was like i believe it was 1989 when the real thing came out mm-hmm. so i saw i saw the transition with faith Moore when they got rid of chuck mosley and got mike Patton. yeah i was there i was right there
0: and in the video jim martin's wearing the cliff burton rest in peace shirt
1: the video yep. was all over so, MTV. So I'm going to say that's late 1988, late, uh, early 1989, right? I think the real thing came out in 89. Am I correct? I think you're right. So then at that time, me and Jim Martin had became really good friends. And he kind of took me to other places that I, I've never gone to.
0: You're correct. I just looked it up. Sorry. Go
1: yeah. <laughs> so he took me to other places that I've never been to before. He, she, she, we, we, were, we were really tight at the time. And he, he also enjoyed... One of my other bands called the Douche Lords, which was like a SOD mentors ripoff yeah. band that Ross Robinson produced. Yeah. That's a whole other story. Yeah. But anyway, so Jim Martin, and so because of Jim Martin, I got to go to see some of the shows when Metallica took Faith the More on tour. Um, it was an Injustice for All tour and Faith the More opened up.
0: Mm-hmm. It was
1: before the band blew up, like kaboom, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And so he got to introduce me to the guys. Jim got to introduce me to James again, and you know he kind of remembered. I guess you, you know drinking so much, he kind of forget. Drinks a right? lot, meets a lot of people, <laughs> and he forgets. Yeah, so that was a cool thing too. And I got to meet everybody again at that time, and it was great going to a few shows backstage and fucking just seeing a lot of people booing Faith the more at that time. Oh, a wow. lot of people booed them. You know, yeah, they got a lot. They got a lot of stuff. So from there. Faith Amor went on tour. But but I also had a project band called Brujeria with Billy Gould from Faith More. Mm-hmm. And we were satanic. We were like fictitious satanic drug lords. Yeah. And we put out these records. And we put out these records. So during all that time, I ended up starting um, Fear Factory in 1990. Right? But... When you go back to '88 and Justice for All, there's one riff that helped me develop my style for Fear Factory, and it was the riff in the middle of one. Wow! My mind has taken yeah. my, you know, it's the it's the one part where the kick drums and the guitar yeah. are doing the same thing. That's so all I was like,
0: I've never put that together. Now that you say that, I can immediately hear dun 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun,
1: dun, yeah, it's like it's like, like it's like the master. middle of stuff by his sister, a little different, yeah, but yeah, you know, very much that kind of vibe. Yeah. And so I always told myself, why can't Metallica do more of that? That's yeah. so bad. That's so badass. I was like, man, they need to do more of that, you know, because you could just hear all the James Heffel's riffs with those kick patterns, you know, like like if you go to Master of Puppets, back to the front, disposable heroes, you know. There's a riff that goes like something like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, but it's just a regular four, four beat. I always yeah. like imagine what would the kicks be like if they were following that? Yeah. So that was kind of like my imagination. I wanted to, I wanted a band that sounded like that. And I looked for bands and there were bands doing stuff here and there. But I was like, you know what? I need to start my own band that does that. And so that's what I did. And that's when I just developed like everything that the, that the kick drum yeah. does, the guitar does.
0: Dyer's Eve yeah. has a little bit of that too, a little bit yeah. on you know, Justice. That's incredible, yeah. and and that's and kind of that speaks to what's so brilliant about Metallica. Also, is that as they're taking their influences and creating a new genre with it, they're making a catalog that has all these seeds within it that can then branch off into you know you create a, a subgenre of your own from a one little seed that they planted in there and then combining your stuff yeah. and that's I mean, amazing. Yeah. It's, it's why I think the band is so relevant still is there's so yeah. many things in there, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, everything from melody to structure to riffs to solos, you name it, to some beats. But, you know, we also, for me as a guitar player, I was really into industrial music and a lot of industrial bands sampled guitar riffs. Yeah. And I was also... Perfect example, and this is not an industrial band; it's a hip hop band. Public Enemy sampled mm-hmm. Slayer. Yep. Right. Channel um, Zero. Yeah, yeah. Angel of Death. They yeah. sampled the mi- the beginning. I'm sorry, the middle part. And so when you hear the riff, you hear where the riff stops and starts again. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's kind of like this how the sampler was. Yeah. So you hear. It, and it just kind of repeats, right?
0: And they're zeroing into like the rhythm of it, like the rhythmic, you know? yeah, Yes, yeah.
1: exactly. And then you hear other bands like KMFDM has sampled that and others, other guitarists. And then you hear Ministry that samples some stuff here and there. So when I was like doing Fear Factory, I was like, okay, I don't have a sampler. How can I emulate the sampler? All right? How can I copy the sampler? So I would always do the stop start thing. You know what I mean? Perfect example, South by sister. Yeah. So I wanted it to sound like it's a sampled riff, but it's really just me playing it. And that's kind of like became our style as well. Yeah. And that's when I, I really found the stop-start riff and just, you know, sure there were some bands doing it here and there, but I wanted to do a whole band like that.
0: Yeah, you know and, what that's I mean? what, and that's what's so... I love that. And that that's where great bands come from. You know, I think like a lot of the... You know, black metal bands originally were like, you know, they listened to like the last half of the of "Raining Blood," the song "Raining Blood," and we're like, what if we had a whole band that was just that? You know what I yeah, mean? yeah. what it's like, yeah, there's these cool little moments, and then a whole m- movement can spread. Well, I
1: think I also think there's some goth influence into the into the black metal thing. Sure. You know, with the with the white makeup and Bauhaus. You know, with the white yep. makeup and you know, uh, even going back to "Fields of the Nephilim." You know. You know, even going back to, to, to uh, The Cure, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? You know, with a certain type of makeup. But sure, of course, they changed it and developed it into their own style. But, you know, there were goth bands that had that intense makeup like that. Yeah,
0: that's I mean, and that's the thing. It's like
1: Christian death. Yeah,
0: yeah, you know I mean? yeah,
1: yeah. Um, you know, they have Jesus Christ shooting up fucking a syringe shooting up. And it's, I think it's a real dude shooting up. Yeah. Just dress them up like Jesus Christ. <laughs>
0: yeah, and 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 that's that shit was right. intense. As you as, you know, I remember reading somewhere somebody said, you know, it was around the time Coldplay was really blowing up when they got massive, and they were like, they were like, Coldplay is just YouTube plus Radiohead, but it's bigger than either one. You know, and it's like there's a lot <laughs> of like somebody comes up with the idea of if I take this, this, and this. And combine it in a way it's never been combined before and then it comes but that's out. just
1: history that's history? And,
0: yeah
1: that's that's just history i mean if you go back to led zeppelin i mean they took a lot of blue stuff you know what i mean Absolutely. you know early blue stuff from mississippi and louisiana and all that stuff and they just made it into rock and roll you know distorted guitars instead of acoustic guitars yeah you know what i mean even similar lyrics you know what i mean so people have been doing that for a long time you know and, that, and that's okay because that's where that's just your influences and just how it progresses and how you can create something new, yeah, new genre or a new you, style.
0: Did you find uh, early on, you know, with those first couple of records, when you know, when you're talking to journalists, when you're talking to fans, people in other bands, did they think that you were looping your guitars and that Raymond was
1: programming yes. drums? And- yes, yes, they totally did. They totally did. We kind of had this thing where, like, okay. We wanted to be like industrial bands, but we didn't have all the industrial things that made some industrial bands. Like some industrial bands had samplers. They sampled some real noises, real sounds, real clanks that they made. And they just they made profiles of these sounds and they made a library that they were able to go to and then put them in songs and create songs. Perfect example is in the Neubauten. They Mm -hmm. made their own instruments you know you can even go back to early craft work but they were making their own instruments as well you know what i mean with all the just electronic elements and taking apart these these things these electronic things and making stuff and then they make all these bleeps and noises to me that's extremely creative and i love i was attracted to all that stuff there's very much so some
0: early depeche mode song where it's it's they sampled someone in the studio, there was like a kitchen in the studio and somebody took all the pots and pans and threw them down a staircase and they recorded that. And that's like a sound that's in a song somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: There's been, you know, there's been artists who've been doing that for a long time. And those those types of things, you know, we were 100% influenced by, right? But yeah. we, we just didn't have the money to afford the technology to do that stuff, right? So we just try to copy it you know, playing drums and guitar, you know, all the basic instruments, drums, guitars, yeah. and, and bass. And you're
0: probably not even realizing how much harder that is and how you're, you're inventing something new by trying to replicate those machine sounds with what are more traditionally kind of organic instruments.
1: Correct. And, um, you know, but there's been other bands like Throbbing Gristle and stuff like that who've been doing stuff organically for, you know, for a long time. Um, but we were, uh, you know, I just kind of took like what I've learned from the thrash era, you know what I mean, and then what I've learned from you know trying to copy the machine, and I just, we just kind of created our own sound. Yeah. And you know we had drums because if you listen to a lot of drums, like sample drums that repeat over and over again, there's not a, there's no rolls, there's no feels. Right. Right. Just snare and kick. Yeah. Or whatever. Right. So we we're like, okay, let's not put any rolls in there. And that was another yeah. thing too. Yeah, let's not put any rolls. And then all those industrial bands, there was no guitar solos. Yeah. So like, okay, let's just remove guitar solos and remove the rolls, like a typical metal band would, you know, uh, wouldn't do. Yeah. <laughs> so Remember, we, yeah, it's
0: like, does Raymond even need to set up rack toms?
1: There's no rolls, so. <laughs> I mean, there was a couple of things that we used the toms for, like, you know, yeah, that we would stop. Yeah like for a stop or like just for a a kind of a a segue going to the next part, right? So we removed all the rolls. P- that's where people thought, holy shit, this shit's all sampled. This is like not real, right? Yeah. And yeah. so because we were trying to copy that stuff, just like you said, with traditional instruments. But it wasn't until about 1992. Sorry, yeah, 1992, where I met a guy named Reese Fulber. Right, he was in a band called Frontline Assembly, and he had he had the wall of fucking keyboards, he had all that stuff, he had the knowledge, he knew everything about those bands. He liked metal, you know what I mean? But he was a fully, you know, electronic industrial dude. And so when I met him, um we were like, we wanted to do I, I convinced Monty Connor, let's do a remix EP. And Monty's like, mm, uh, you know, I'm not really, uh, you know, uh, he did kind of. He's probably going to get mad at me, but he kind of didn't really understand what I was talking about, right? You know, I
0: mean, and that wasn't a metal thing.
1: Metal bands were wasn't a remixy piece. <laughs> like, no, yeah. exactly. It was not a real, it was not a metal thing. But sure, bands like Godflesh did it, which who was a big influence on us as well. But they did it, and I was like, I, you know, of course, like bands like Ministry and Nine Inch Nails. Well, was Nine Inch Nails? Yeah, Nine Inch Nails existed. There was other bands that like yeah, can't But
0: Those are, those are like your the- bands that are still kind of metal adjacent, but in that like kind of more narrow metal world that Roadrunner was in, that Monty was in at the time, this wasn't no. like... Nobody, yeah, so nobody else nobody on the label was asking for this.
1: So Monty Monty knew what I was talking about and he goes, look, you need to talk to this guy. When he finally got it, he goes, you need to talk to this guy who worked at Third Mine Records because it was a subsidiary... Or I think Roadrunner was distributing their stuff. And their third mine was more of a electronic electronic industrial, small little label based out of England. And I believe Roadrunner was distributing all their stuff here in the U.S. Or, they were connected with Roadrunner. So Monty's like, talk to this guy. So the, that guy told me, need to talk to Reese Fulber. And so that's how we made the connection. That's how I talked to Reese Fulber. We hit it off like that. Um... He was fully knew exactly what I wanted to do, right? And, you know, because we were at that point, we had already toured Europe a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And I was ready, I was ready into electronic techno stuff like Me Beat Manifesto, early prodigy, stuff like that. So when we got to Europe and we were playing these shows, we seen fucking techno raves everywhere. Right. Like there was even clubs that we would play we have to be done at 10. Because yeah, it turns then into a rave after. <laughs> it <turns> into <laughs> yeah. a rave. And so we would yeah. stick around because, you know, all the girls were there. Yeah. Killer beats. <laughs> you know, all this cool stuff. We're like, wow. You know, like, I was fully exposed to all that stuff, you know, more than what I was, you know, being in California. So, I'm, you know, I'm in Germany and Austria and all that hard techno back then. In Rotterdam, where it's even faster. <laughs> which like... What do they call it? Gaba back then, really fast techno. And I was like, "Holy shit, this is badass!" So when I met up with Reese, I was like, "You know, this is the kind of stuff I like. This is kind of like what I wanted. You know, this is what I heard out there." And I was like, "I want this. I want this type of stuff." And so Reese started doing it. And then I was like, "What happens if we take a song, but we we leave it in the same structure that it is, but you just add all your stuff on top of it, and let's see what that sounds?" Because when he was doing remixes at first. He was totally reconstructing the song, yeah. making it completely different, right? And you maybe only recognize it by a riff or a vocal line, right? Mm-hmm. But I wanted him to take one song and leave it in its regular form, but put all his stuff on top of it. And he did that yeah. with Scapegoat. A song called Scapegoat. So the Fear is yeah. the mind killer EP, and it was called the Pig Fuck Remix, right? Mm-hmm. So it was Scapegoat. He did that. And when he, when he did that, I was like, that's it. That's our sound. That's it. We finally got it. That's it. Because you know, we did. We did Solving the Machine. It had 17 songs on it. We were kind of like all over the place on that record. Now you hear some heavy industrial groove, and then you hear some fucking death metal, thrash metal, and then you some more industrial groove, and then you know, it's it was kind of all over the place, and you could tell we were still trying to find who we were, right? but really what we did is we just threw every song we had on right. one record. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> you know and, that, I mean? That's that thing. You have your whole career to write your debut and six months to write the follow-up.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think that, I mean, there's people who love that record. Don't get me wrong, but I think it was like, if we narrowed it down to the 10 best songs, maybe it would have gotten more attention. Right. But once we did fears, the Mind killer, and we did scapegoat remix. We're like, that's our sound. So when we went to do D we were like, okay, we need to include Reese in this writing process because this is what we're trying to make. And it was like, it went, it was quick. I mean, me and Raymond wrote the music in like three months. Mm-hmm. It was really fast. And then Reese, it only took him you know, a few weeks to put all the stuff in there. And it was just like, wow, we, I just started to see this develop. And I was like, this is amazing, right? So when we went to, into the recording process, to do the record we were using colin richardson as a producer but colin richardson is more known for you know the all the extreme metal that he's done carcass you know uh napalm death
0: and he was the shit if you were going to do an extreme metal record that wasn't changing anything about the game right he was who you wanted like it made sense
1: yeah and we, we use them on what Sol- you had in mind <laughs> yeah well we use them on solveny machine yeah. So by the time we got to D Manufacturer, we already had hired him. So we brought him in and right away within the first couple of weeks, I was already butting heads with him because we just, I could just tell my, my fear was that he wasn't going to get what we wanted. He wasn't going to understand what we want. Nothing against his production. It was just at this point, we, in my head, I already had a different, I already had a vision what it wanted to sound like and i could tell that colin richardson wasn't he just wasn't there right and um so it was like you know there, there's even a quote from reese fulber that when he was doing the keyboards uh when he was tracking the keyboards for the album that he said that he felt like colin didn't even want him there you know what i mean that's so yeah. kind of like kind of like the vibe that we were getting from colin and like I said, now, I was buddy heading. Keyboard with.
0: stuff over with, and then I can talk them into not using it later. <laughs> like yes. Yeah. As a
1: matter of fact, he said, Look, I'm going to mix this record in England, but I don't want Dino there. Right? Because we were already buddy heads. So he flew to England to go mix the album. And remember, back then, we're using two inch tape, right? Mm-hmm. So you had these big old reels, there's probably 20 of them. And it, took, and it cost a lot of money to get that stuff shipped out there, right? So we got it, got it out there to England. Burton had went out there to England with him because we fell behind schedule because me and Colin were butting heads and we wasted a lot of time and a lot of days. Right. So Bert, so Bert went out there to finish some vocal tracks. So when he went out there to mix it, me and Reese Fulber were talking, and I'm like, uh, you know, Greg Reilly, Greg Reely, who mixed the Fears the Mind Killer EP. I go, he probably sees the vision that we that we want because you listen to The Fears of Michael. Yeah, I'm like, and that's what I want.
0: Segway from the first record to the second one. So, yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. Yes, the bridge. And I was like, I think we need to get that guy. And Reese is like, yep, you're right. We need to get him. We need to get him. Yeah, let's do it. And, and, he, and Reese is like, well, you got to commence the label. And by that time, you got to remember, we were probably already spent $100,000 on that record.
0: And you and you're behind. And this is in the days when it's like you gotta get it in by this date because we gotta do this. And this is you know, everything's all and and
1: regimented. we're behind, right? Yeah. And probably because of me and the producer, we're behind, right? So then I call Monty and I said, Monty, look, I don't think this guy is gonna mix it. And, and how- for people who
0: don't know, Monty's, you know, and our guy that signed you to Fear Factor signed Fear Factor to Roadrunner and you know, a legend in that in that realm. Worked with all the yeah. classic roadrunner bands. Yeah, so, or, uh, yeah. So, you so, call Monty.
1: so I call Monty and I convinced him to give give me a shot, give us some more money to to remix the record with Greg Greeley But Monty was like, yeah, I don't know yet. I don't know about that yet. But I was telling Monty, I go, look, I know exactly what's going to happen. These mixes are going to come back, and the keyboards are going to be buried, right? And the kick drum is not going to be predominant. Like, I like it. So he was like, well, let's see what happens when the mixes come back. So Colin released like three or four songs to us and we listened to it. And I was like, this is exactly what I said. And Monty was like, what's the name of that guy again that you wanted to, to mix the record? So thank God Monty agreed and allowed you know us to get all the tapes back to L.A. and uh, give us the money to go and remix the record. And Greg really just did his magic, Greg really and Reese Fulber. And I swear to God that when I was in the studio and I just heard what he was doing and the EQ on the guitars and the sound replacements that we were doing on the kick and snare and, you know, just the keyboards not buried being up there, you know, in the mix. Mm-hmm. I mean, I started crying. I knew this was the record. I knew this was our sound. And that's where we really developed who we were. Right and there, it was bold,
0: And I know it's easy to say with hindsight, but for people to, to understand the context of the times, you know, going for the, those choices, the sound replacements, the the heavy uh, atmospherics of the keyboards, there was no guarantee that that was going to work. You know, that could have been the end of the band. People could have said, what the hell is this? And
1: well, we that thought that left. on Soul of the Machine. We thought that was the end of the. We thought that it could have, it could have, ended bad but it didn't and, we, and Fear fears the Mind Killer a techno, death metal, grindcore yeah. industrial, electronic dance music like what the fuck is that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so when Soul of a New Machine came out our first record, people heard Burt's melodic vocals and people were like what the fuck is that mm-hmm. Like this, these kind of vocals don't belong on this extreme type of record no way, you know what I mean and so we got a lot of backlash but at the same time we got a lot of attention because of it yeah so that worked that kind of worked in our favor and then we threw them another left curve when we put out fears the mind killer remix record and people were like oh fuck what the fuck is this is this band turning into a dance band what the fuck you know <laughs> we heard it all we heard it all right thank god the internet didn't exist back then or social media oh, we probably yeah. would have been canceled <laughs> <laughs> well i love one of the many
0: things i love about fear factory is that it, it, it's it's a band that has like an elevator pitch. Like you can explain what the band is in a few sentences, you know, it, it, and and that's the beauty of it. Like the brilliance of the simplicity. Like i I know I've told you this before, but the first time I, I saw you guys live was in 95 on D Manufacture. And I was waiting tables at this restaurant in Atlanta. And I vividly remember I was trying to get this girl that worked there to come with me to the show. She didn't, but she was like, what, what, what what's the band called? And I was like, Fear Factory. And she's like, What kind of music is it? And um I was like, It's extreme metal with industrial. And she was like, That's exactly what that name sounds like. And I always remember that, you know, for some reason. But
1: yeah, yeah. that's
0: is what the, well, the name factory, sounds like. You know, the the factory just,
1: in there. Yeah, yeah and the then factory the fear, like you know, yeah, it's very. And um so you know, when Solvay yeah. Machine came out, you know, we we got a lot of people giving us shit because of the melodic vocals really because of the melodic vocals and then like i said the the industrial dance remix album people were pissed off about that too now if we listen to those people we wouldn't be able to push forward you know what i mean
0: yeah
1: you know we were like okay let's let's can the melodic vocals and just stay death metal you know what i mean or and again stay- for people
0: who don't understand the context the idea of screaming you know extreme vocal verses and quote-unquote clean singing melodic choruses as like a formula it didn't exist that's not to say that no one had ever done it that there weren't you know clean singing there were there like
1: were parts songs. there were parts where you heard you know maybe one part and one record right right but and the that idea that
0: like that's going to be a, a dependable structure that you can like rely on like this you know the songs that have like a melodic chorus and it's going to have like death metal verses like that. You know, I, mean, I, I, as, as somebody who loves this music, I don't remember that before. D-Made. I've
1: heard other people claim that, and I've even heard, uh, I'm trying to remember who it was. There was a, uh, there was a social, there was a, a metal site that tried to, that did this video and it's on YouTube and you can watch it. And I think it was Loudwire. And they were talking about bands like Opeth and stuff like that. But Opeth didn't really come out until 1994. And they, yeah, were it, about, it wasn't... they were talking about Ed Guy, a band called Ed Guy. And I was like, there was one song where they were doing heavy stuff. And then, and then it kind of stopped. I went into this little keyboard, like kind of orchestral part. And a guy sang like like uh, half a verse melodically. Yeah. So then it went back I mean, to
0: being fade to black has but that was but that was, 1990.
1: that yeah, was but 1992 not, yeah 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 that and and there's
0: something to for parallel thinking you know like what happens uh with
1: any kind of art um but the thing about it is we made it a formula we made it like exactly. heavy melodic every, almost every song yeah right and again like you formula. were saying
0: like why don't you do that for why don't you make a whole band of this you know that's yeah
1: you that's kind of like exactly what i was thinking and then when, here comes d manufacture 1995, right? Here comes d manufacture 1995. And I believed, I want to believe that we opened the door to that formula. We're like, Absolutely. okay, this sounds amazing. People are like, I remember when the record came out, we, uh, the reviews everywhere was 10 out of 10, 5 out of 5, 100 out of 100. Everybody was praising the record and it definitely did open the doors for Fear Factory, right? Not only just, you know, with tours and stuff like that, but it really opened a lot of eyes to this formula Mm -hmm. that could work. Uh, We showed people that formula can work and we perfected it. And I believe that that influenced a lot of people. But I think over time, people forget where the influence came from because other bands got popular after we did, like Kill Switch Engage and stuff like that. And so, the newer school kids would probably look at Killswitch Gage as being the forefathers of that stuff. Right. Blah, 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 blah. When you right. don't, when you don't know how to reverse engineer it all the
0: way backwards, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've had many, many conversations about this stuff, and and the guys at Killswitch Engage have you know given us props for stuff of like course. that. Yeah. I mean, you can even talk to Devin Townsend, who wanted to when he first started strapping young lad, his formula was Fear Factory, and you can hear that on his first record, and you can hear it on City. You know he's 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 had a podcast and he's talked about it, so I'm actually quoting him. But you know he was a he said that we first influenced him back in the day, and uh, and it's it's amazing to hear those kind of things that we influenced these amazingly talented musicians like a guy like Devin Townsend, you know, in the early years, you know, and even a band like kill switch Engage, you know, that we influenced them, and even uh even Lincoln Park. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That was a joke. But um, but it you know it, it's cool that the, you know it's it's an honor. It's 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 very yeah. flattering. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that to me was success. When you really influence somebody who's that talented, like a guy like Devin Townsend who's that talented, you influence him in the in the early years of his development. That you know to me that's success. That's 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 more than money, to me. That's more than gold. That just what you know having an honor of him talking about that. You know what I mean? That Mm -hmm. was like, like, okay, I made it.
0: And that, and that's that reciprocal thing, like sandwiches and weed, you know, like you have your influences, (laughs) you put things out and influences other people. And it's like, you know, knowing that you have, that you've played a role in things that have affected so many people in ways that you don't even understand that you may never even hear about. You know, like I the, think
1: I think nice. I think I think in some ways we also subconsciously uh, influence people. Oh, like sure. Maybe they maybe they heard a Replica or Zero Signal on the Mortal Kombat. Maybe they heard a Replica somewhere. Maybe they heard something somewhere, and then they like, and then somehow they were just playing a riff and they didn't really know where it came from. It might have been something they just heard, mm-hmm. and then you know that kind of influenced them as well too. But you know all that to me is it's flattering, and like I said, it's it's to me that's success.
0: Absolutely. That's, and that's such a great perspective to have on it. I mean, because yeah. you know, and trying and all the ways that we count and measure and try to, to define success, there's always a bigger fish. There's always a new mountain to climb. I think when and you can define success for yourself, you know. Yeah,
1: And Zach Wild said something to me uh, when Dimebag Daryl passed away. Um, we, you know, we're obviously at his funeral and stuff like that. And you know, there's one thing that Zach Wild said, so look, Dime gave the torch to us to keep and it's, and it's up to us to pass the torch on other people. So in other words, he's saying Dime gave us this beautiful metal influence and it's us to influence other people and give it to them, you know, pass it on. And I was like, wow, that was like, you know, that was a good quote from him that I really liked a lot. Yeah, it's beautiful,
0: man. It, is. it really is. It sounds sounds corny to say it's beautiful, but it is beautiful. I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we've talked before about you're somebody who likes to keep your ear to the ground and pay attention to what's happening and bands as they're coming up and all of that. And I always think, you know, bringing us back to Metallica, I always think about, you know, Garage Days and Androsis for all that whole era with Jason Newstead kicking off. He was. He became the guy in the band that always had his ear to the ground and would, you know, wear a machine head hoodie and a picture and was into sepultura and and, and all that sort of thing. As Fear Factory was was on the ascent, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> did, was there an awareness with Metallica? Did you? Because because I, I, you did tour with them, but that came you know many years later. Um, but was did you cross paths with them? Play festivals together? Was there? you know were they aware
1: yeah. of you guys yes oh yeah of course um uh, I, I got a good story when d manufacturer came out um mark i i'm not sure if i'm gonna say his last name right Cosagueta, from death angel so yeah what's his last name o- Osagueta, i think Osagueta, yeah so he was he told me this story i saw one day i was walking down hate street and he was working at this clothing store he's like hey dino i was like oh fuck you know it's Mark and blah 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 of course I was a big Death Angel fan of course right they are part of the Bay Area Thrash legends and so at that time he was living with Kirk Hammett oh right so when when, um, D Manufacture came out he turned on D uh, D Manufacture to Kirk Hammett so I remember reading some interviews in guitar magazines during that time where he was talking about you know, Fear Factory and Godflesh. You actually mentioned Godflesh right. as well. So thank you to Mark for turning on Kirk Kamet to that record. Yeah. So I have another story too. So a friend of mine was selling weed and he, and he sold, you know, back then, you're talking about 1985, he sold, <laughs> um, I can't remember how much he sold, but the way it was explained to me is that he sold a brick of weed to Tom Maria. right? <laughs> Amazing, and in the middle of the brick of weed, and this is a real story. Yeah. In the middle, I, I, I don't know the amount, but I'm just the way it was told to me was a brick. If you're thinking of a brick, yeah. you're thinking like a brick, right? Yeah. And in between the brick, he put demanufactured. <laughs> but it was a it was a promo disc. It was a yeah. promo disc, right? Yeah. So it was thinner. It was, yeah. You know, it wasn't the jewel case, it was thinner. So he put the he put the promo disc in the middle of the weed. So when Tom Maria was breaking it up. There's a CD in the middle, and it happened to be ours, and we toured with Slayer uh, a few years, uh, the, the following record, Obsolete. <laughs> Every little bit counts. You never know. Every <laughs> little bit counts. Yeah. Every little bit counts, man. And I, we, I was just very happy that people were turning on
0: yeah.
1: uh, our record to other bigger musicians, other bigger artists. So going down going down to 2001, when DJ Mortal came out, mm-hmm we were playing in the Dynamo Festival, right? And we were on stage and we were jamming. I just happened to look over and there's James, there's James and Lars on one side and they were all checking us out. But James stayed there, Kirk Hammett stayed there the longest. You know, those are the things you notice. When you got guys, you know, who've paved the way for you, you know what I mean? That, you know, these are your, I guess your peers and these are the people that you worship since you were, a teenager, and and then when they're there watching you, you notice, you notice, you know, I mean, you, you're gonna that memory is gonna stick with you, and that memory stuck with me, stood with me, and you know, it was really cool. We got to talk to them afterwards, stuff like that. So, oh, right, and that was at the that was like one of the last dynamo festivals that happened in Holland. Mm-hmm. That was a huge festival, obviously, that was around for a long yeah. time. Yeah, probably hundred thousand people there. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And something stupidly insane. Yeah. <laughs> and and you did later
0: the Dino you know, Burt version of Fear Factory, right? Played with Metallica. Yes. You toured with yeah. them in Australia. Fa- yeah. Fast forward really. to
1: 2010, uh during the Mechanized record. You know, we also had Gene Hogan in the band at the time. Yeah. And, and um we that's got asked to do, I mean that, that's that might be my second favorite. Fear Factory, we got it. Right? Yeah, we got oh, wow. asked to do the Metallica tour in, I guess, the Norway. What would you call that? The like Scandinavian, yeah, Scandinavian tour, like Lithuania, and you know, just that whole region, right? And then we also went to Russia with them. Oh, wow, right. right? Yeah, that was amazing. We also went to Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, which is amazing. Half yeah. the tour was gojira opening up the other half was baroness i think i'm not sure it was a it was a stoner rock band that Lars really liked a lot that they opened up but we were on that whole tour i don't know maybe 25 shows or so 20 shows but it was kind of weird because there were breaks in between like a week or two breaks yeah because they they
0: do like two weeks on two weeks off or whatever now now, Yeah. yeah
1: yeah and and i know that. That like, I think Denmark was the hub.
0: I was gonna say they do a hub where they'll pick like Paris or somewhere and and yeah, they fly in and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly do it that way, do it,
1: <laughs> yeah. So, we so the first day we were in Norway, right? First shows in Norway, and here we are, we're jet lagged, retired. We get to the arena, right? I don't know, 40,000 people, 30,000 people, whatever it is, it's, it's something stupid. <laughs> Um, And we get to the arena. And so we're all in the dressing room and we're all kind of like, you know, taking naps because we're, you know, jet lagged like like a motherfucker. So we hear a pounding on the door. Fear factory in here is fear factory in here. What the fuck? And it was James Heffield. (laughs) (laughs) And he's waking us all up. And we're like, holy fuck. Hey, what's up? And then we just started talking. It was just like, it was great. It was like, he was just being cool being you know just being a just a dude just hanging out with you and it's cool because we got to pa- talk about old stuff you know what i mean yeah and uh he saw my guitar which i have a picture of. he's holding one of my guitars one of my ibanez's and he's holding the guitar that's good like, that's kind oh a
0: picture i use for this podcast
1: <laughs> yeah he's holding my guitar and he's like and he goes oh my god one pickup one knob he's like oh my god the thing feels the thing feels amazing so he was actually playing it. I was like, "Wow, this is fucking, this is amazing." Ivan is wow, you know. It's like, and he goes, "I like your one knob. It's just a volume knob." And he goes, "This knob is like, he just you turn it on, you go." He said, "Go." He had that James Hetfield like, "Go," you know what I mean? That's sick. Yeah. That's how he said it. And I was like, and he was just jamming on. It. I'm like, I had to take a picture, <laughs> you know, him playing my guitar, you know. Yeah. But it was like, it was really kind of funny because, like you know, I cropped the picture, but the uncropped picture, you see everybody else in the background, and everybody's just on their computers, on their phones, whatever, right? It was <laughs> like, it became so normal, in him hanging out, yeah, that people were just like doing their normal things. Whereas, you know, if it was, you know, if it wasn't so normal, you'd be like, holy fuck, James is here, and you want to talk to him, you know what I mean? So, it became so normal that he was there, that he just kind of, you know, He was just one of those cool guys. That's amazing. And that's what what you want, right? That's the dream. Yeah. I remember the first day, too. The first day, you know, of course, Metallica treats you well, and they eat well, blah, 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 right? Everything is amazing. They got masseuses backstage. They got chiropractors backstage. They got just um, the catering is amazing, right? So they had this spread, and it happened to be Mexican food in Norway. <laughs> you know, obviously I, I guess Metallica could make up their own menu, right? Yeah. Or the chef makes up their own menu. And I guess they picked Mexican food that day, right? And so here I was, you know, waiting to get, you know, a taco, or whatever it was. <laughs> Somebody behind me goes, hey, do you know we got Mexican food just because we knew you were going to be here. <laughs> and it was Kirk. It was Kirk busting my balls. <laughs> that's a good kirk compression too yeah it was, <laughs> and it was great and then and then um that's and then awesome. i just remember they said okay you have access to the to the masseuse and the chiropractor you guys have access to it but don't abuse it right <laughs> yeah so of course i went to the chiropractor the masseuse it was amazing it's like you get that kind of treatment you know what i mean yeah it was it was Right. That's killer.
0: Don't abuse it. Don't be using it when one of those guys needs it.
1: <laughs> yeah, because another well the, well, the guy, the masseuse and the chiropractor said, "Look, you guys can come in here, but look, if one of these guys are going to come, you got to you got to get out. Yeah. You got to go. Fair you know what I mean, no yeah. offense, you got to go. You know what I mean, yeah. so one of my other cool stories is we when we got to Russia, right? When you get to Russia, there's security, those metal detectors everywhere. You." I mean, we were walking into ten-star hotels. I remember the arena that we played. The arena that we played was connected to the hotel, right? Mm-hmm. And they have an elevator that goes down underneath the ground, and you walk through a tunnel to get to the arena, right? So we get to the hotel, and you got to put all your, you know, your your bags, excuse me, your bags through the metal detectors, and you got to go through a metal detector through a scanner and then a metal detector and this is how it was in russia i guess they didn't want any mafia dudes walking in with, mm-hmm. with pistols or rifles whatever to could okay. kill people anyway so we walk in this beautiful hotel amazing hotel and you know then we got to go down underneath we got to go to the tunnel go to the arena that shit's fucking out of this world i've never you know that's the only time i've ever experienced that stuff yeah <clears throat> so every night Metallica would close down a restaurant, and so after the show, gotta remember these are arena shows. Mm-hmm. So the shows are usually over by ten o'clock or so, right? They're all ages shows, and you know they're packing all those people in, and so Metallica took us to this another ten star restaurant, and to go into the restaurant, you got to go through a metal detector as well.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: and we're talking like beautiful, beautiful places. So we sit down and all the patrons that are there are slowly leaving because they shut down the restaurant for Metallica. And remember, everybody's wearing like suit and ties or very nice attire in this, you know, in this place. For us, you know, it was cold. We're just jeans and T-shirts. Metallica were the same thing. They wore whatever the hell they want. So we're in there. Excuse me. So we're in there in the restaurant. Kirk and Rob light up a joint. So they're smoking. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit, they're like smoking in this restaurant. And no nobody's saying it. Like the <laughs> chefs, the chefs came out, and they fucking took pictures with Metallica. And people who worked there came and took pictures of Metallica. And we just had this five beautiful coarse meal steaks and just all kind of, you know salads with the really small forks and things like that. You know what I mean? Like I didn't even know what everything was for. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And so that's just the kind of, you know, that's just who they were. It doesn't matter where they were or how expensive the place is. They were who they were. They walked yeah. in, they did what they wanted. And it was like an an experience to, to experience that. It was just, Trippy.
0: And it's a pool smoke, weed,
1: Smoking weed in the fucking restaurant. I mean, we're talking like probably a restaurant that a lot of people don't get to go to. Yeah. Especially in yeah. Russia. You know what I mean? You know that, you know, that those big rich mafia guys walk into those restaurants. You know what I mean? So it was cool. But then at the same time, like we go to other countries and they would just like pick this cool little Italian restaurant, little small Italian restaurant, and we would just take it over. And we'd have this fucking amazing fucking Italian spread. So it was cool. And, it, and, it's,
0: it. and it's full circle in that it goes back to like, you know, when you saw him with Armored Saint and you're like, look, these guys are just, they are who they are. They don't give a fuck. They're doing it how they want. It's like all these years later, all the success, all the accolades that at their heart, it's still that same attitude, that same mentality. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But you know, like my band Fear Factory, we just re- released uh, our first single called Disruptor, right? And it's, it, it, it for a, c- a couple of days, reached number two mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. daily iTunes chart, right? Yep. Or Apple charts, whatever yep. you want to call it. Because it's it changes every day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's so, Apple
0: music charts and iTunes charts, both, which is confusing, but yeah.
1: Yeah. So here we are, number one for like a day or two, but just right under that is still fucking inner Sandman which is like, what, 30 years later, mm-hmm. still number one in the fucking battle charts. Yeah. Like, holy shit. Like We're having this conversation you know, in, it, in, in, in
0: 2021, right? That album came out in 91. We're at a time and place where, you know, a record can sell 15, 20,000 copies and be number one on Billboard. The Black album is still, right now, as we're talking... Selling two, three thousand copies a week in America.
1: Yes, Man, it's like yes, it's insane. There's two well, or three thousand that,
0: people every week who are like, you know what I need? I need that that black album by Metallica. I'm gonna yeah. buy that today.
1: Well, you got to realize, dude, but you got to realize that Metallica is definitely a staple in every in our life. Even if you don't know who they are, mm-hmm. right? It's just become, I guess you would say. How would you compare? Like I'm only talking about sales and iconic, right? You know, they became our Michael Jackson. Sure, they became our. You know, who else would sell records like?
0: I mean, that? I mean, the black albums like back, back in black.
1: You know, there you go, ACDC. Yeah. Maybe the Guns N' Roses, the first record. Mm-hmm. Now those records don't disappear. Queen. Those records are still in the charts. Yeah, if you look at the top five, it's like ac or. You know, Metallica, ACDC, Guns N' Roses, Queen. And I can't even think who would be after that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. and and It's insane. Yeah. And it is. There are, they've become one of those. But it
1: felt good to at least for those one or two days that we actually beat those bands on iTunes, but it only lasts a day or two. And then boom, (laughs) they're right. (laughs) (laughs) back. And that's
0: so crazy. And that's the experience for every heavy, every hard rock band, every metal band is
1: yeah, you're gonna come yeah. out and, and have then, your
0: success, and then you're gonna it's gonna subside, and the black album's still gonna be there.
1: <laughs> and then, like, you know, and then you go to the rock charts, and those bands actually I was mentioning were on the rock charts, you know, Queen and all this stuff. But in the metal charts, it's still Metallica's number one. It's like they just those that record is so iconic, and I was gonna say, like. You know, like I was just watching a commercial the other day. You know, you hear, like, something from that record. You know what I mean? On a commercial. And you hear it. I hear it at baseball stadiums. When batters come up to bat, they get to pick their intro music when they come out to bat. I hear Inner Salmon there.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You know what I mean? Metallica playing the national anthem at baseball games. Um, You hear it everywhere. You hear it at hockey games. You hear it at... uh, football games you just hear it everywhere and this still boggles my mind why they haven't done the halftime show
0: absolute insanity that they haven't done the halftime show
1: especially after
0: prince and you know some artists who are like rock artists that have guitars who come out and just dominate and destroy a lot of the other genres that are usually there why haven't we had them? Well,
1: a lot of those other genres kind well some of those artists come and go pretty quickly yeah. They kind of like pick who's ever hot as far as pop. You know what I mean? Yeah. And some um, of those pop artists come out and try to do rock shows. You know? Correct. Like you had Bruno Mars bring out Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yep. Yeah. Maroon you know
0: 5. Mean? Adam Levine was out there with a the guitar. And yeah. Come on. And come on. That's up.
1: like, come on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> like they they know that like that's an element that you need. So yeah. It is, well, you had, yeah, was- yeah. You
1: even had Shakira and Beyonce. They were kind of like yeah. dressed in like almost like a almost like battle vests with spikes yeah. on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It had like a metal attire for like a, I don't know, 40 seconds. And then all of a sudden they changed into something else. You know, it's, uh, it's there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but to me, why they never had ACDC or Metallica, you know, I think that's where most of those, you know, football fans lie, if you ask me. Hmm. You know what I mean? There's a reason yeah. why those records don't die
0: absolutely and it's like appetite black album yeah these are like dark side of the moon these are like
1: i mean the closest that we ever got to records that don't die is demanufactured obsolete those records on a very 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 small scale yeah on a different scale but still
0: endure and are still you will never play a fear factory show as long as you live where people won't expect to hear music from demanufactured obsolete you know those are correct staples those are sick because those those records are part of the metal culture even in a way that
1: transcends the band you know correct correct and uh you know every record that i do every new record i do i always try to sure there's always going to be the fear factory element in there but i always try to bring in something different you know what Mm -hmm. i mean um and usually that just comes with melodies or structures you know what i mean but it's you know as far as you know Fear Factory trying to bring in hip hop elements, that's not going to happen anymore, ever again, really. Yeah. yeah. You know I mean? Unless, you know, somebody, something crazy happens, but no.
0: Yeah, and and, and speaking of which, and new elements, as we're talking right now, and I'll, I'll put this episode out pretty quickly. Um, you know, you've done some interviews recently where you said you're very close to figuring out who's going to sing.
1: Well, cool, it's more sorry. of like, it's more <laughs> of like a choice. It's more of like, who am I going to choose? And in, in order for me to choose somebody, besides them being talented, of course, right? And that you could, you could see with video submissions and, mm-hmm. you know, giving guys certain, uh, or giving people, sorry, giving people certain uh, instrumental tracks to sing all of them, right? Yeah. But the only thing, the only element that's missing is that getting them here in Los Angeles and spending time with them to see if we get along with them. That's the only thing that's missing. Mm-hmm. And some of them, some of those people are in Europe. So, and some of their countries, they can't leave yet or it's difficult for them to get out. Right. Yep. Um, just just still because of the COVID restrictions. Right. Sure, there's plenty of ways to do it, but, you know, we, we can fly to Mexico.
0: That personal chemistry, because this is someone you're going to spend a lot
1: of time with correct and this is the guy that this i'm sorry keep saying guy this is the person that i want to them to be around for a while you know what i mean so you make a few records and just continue to tour you know what i mean and um again in my choice gender does not play a role so it could be any any person
0: oh yeah i mean i certainly bands like Arch Enemy, Spirit Box, not just female-fronted bands, but bands that have women who do aggressive death metal vocals and melodic singing. There's, yeah, we've, um, there's pre- plenty of precedent now.
1: I featured some of those females on my Instagram and on Fear Factory Instagram and a lot of people, there was a lot of controversy, right? Mm-hmm. Some people were really into it, really into it, like, wow, you got a female singer that sounds like that, wow. And then Other people were, like, very male chauvinistic, you know, like, just talking a lot of shit about a female vocalist, right? And it was like... like, you
0: said, going back to demanufacture, if you listen to those people, you would never get where you are, you know? You gotta do what makes sense to you, what's right for you artistically.
1: Correct. I look at this as a good opportunity. For people who don't know it, there are singer that we had for the last 30 years that quit the band again for the third time. Mm -hmm. He's quit the band. So... Right now, because he's gone, um, it's, I look at this as a really good opportunity to start something new, something fresh, and give people something different. Um, Whether it's male or female, I'm gonna pick the right person who is going to represent this band, you know, for years to come. So, um, and that's a really, it's a really big decision. And so I want to make I want to make sure I make the right one. I'm just not gonna go. Oh, he, oh, cool. He sounds good. Let's just take him. And yeah. Then, well, because no. you also
0: don't want to end up in a situation where it's a different person two years after that, and you're, you know, well, we see bands yeah. fall into that trap. But you know,
1: I think at some there's point
0: Maiden, there's ACDC, there's Van Halen, there's a lot of bands that have very successfully pulled off a front person. Switch. Todd, Todd switch the
1: Tory for, for you
0: know, uh, oh, dude. I mean, if Queens you know, right, and... as you and I are talking right now, the sales numbers just came out for Jeff Tate's new project. And i resp- I'm a Queens Rike fan, all respect to Jeff Tate. Todd's solo album that he put out a couple months ago sold more than Jeff Tate's album, you know. So it's like it, there is, yeah, there is a precedent you can, it can be accomplished, you know, correct. That an amazing. You know, And he can sing,
1: you know, there have been,
0: but he can sing Jeff's stuff better than Jeff does now. So,
1: yeah. So, when Bert exited the band, he kind of blamed me for everything. He blamed everybody for everything. And a lot of fans saw that, like, oh, what did Dino do? You know what I mean? What did he do? Oh, it's all Dino's fault, blah, 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 blah. Bert left the band because of you, blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, okay, you know, whatever. Right whatever. So I look at this again, I look at this as a great opportunity to get somebody who wants to be there, who wants to, you know, front this band, who wants to, you know, perfect his craft and take care of his vocals. You know, I want somebody who's going to be there, who's hungry and uh, who appreciates being there. Not somebody who just takes it for granted or somebody who's just doing it for the money, or someone who's just doing it to try to promote their other band. I want somebody who's gonna, you know, kind of be where I'm at, where to me, success is not about money. Success is, success is like what Zach Wild said. You're passing the torch to somebody else. Somebody, a big known artist, you know, appreciates what you do and, 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 and is influenced by that and goes on to do great and bigger and greater things. Mm-hmm. That to me is success, right? And I just want somebody who has that kind of attitude and vibe, you know what I mean? And um, like I said, just somebody who wants to be there.
0: Yeah. And somebody who can honor what's come before and deliver it well, and also help you usher in something new and different as it goes forward. Like that's correct.
1: Correct. Yeah. I mean, you know, we can get into the, all the he said, she said stuff. And that stuff's boring already. I'm already over it. Now it's like, You know, I need to give the fans what they want. I feel like I've been doing that, you know, since he's quit the band. Really, he quit the band three years ago. People just didn't know until he announced it. Right. Which was last year. Right. But he technically quit the band three years ago around 2017, 2018, around there, which is pretty much the last time we spoke. So I was like, okay, since he quit now i'm going to have to take this record that we create that we wrote a few years ago and I'm going to need to take this record and how am i what am i going to do with this record to make it better right so initially the record had programmed drums on it mm-hmm. right and we already had gone down that road with a record called the industrialist and we got a lot of backlash so i was like okay we need to get real drums We have our drummer, Mike Keller, who's been with the band for nine years. There's no reason why he shouldn't be able to play drums on, right? So we were like, okay, we need to get a really good mixer. Why don't we get Andy Sneap? He mixed GeneXus, right? Mm -hmm. And that record was a fucking amazing. So I was like, I need to get this team back. I need to get Reese back on board. I need to get... Uh, the guy who pretty much uh, helped me produce GeneXus. I need to get him back on on board. His name is Damien Reynaud. He's been working with the band since since the Industrials, And I needed to get this team around me, but I had no money because the record label had already given us all the money that they would give us. Mm -hmm. So, but I want people to know that, look, without the record company's permission, I couldn't make all these changes. So I talked to Monty O'Connor again this is kind of like the demanufacture mm-hmm. situation, right? You're or, like look, the
0: record is technically done and I could put it out like this, but it won't be everything it could be and that it should be.
1: Correct. Exactly. Exactly. So I had to, you know, contact Monty again and I had to say, look, you know, there's some things, there's some elements missing on this record that we need to we need to do it to make it even better. And he agreed but he kind of had his hands tied when it came to finances. Sure. So, I start, so I started a GoFundMe page and it was going quite well, right? In the beginning. But unfortunately, our ex-singer decided to say that it was a, a scam or whatever. He tried to... But in his mind, the record's been... sabotaged. Sitting there. <laughs> yeah. In his mind, it's already... To a certain standard. Yeah. Yeah. To a certain standard, correct? My standards is like, like I said, going back to demanufacturing totally compared the difference. Yeah. Um, so in a weird way, he tried to sabotage the situation. And, but it was kind of, and when I say weird, it was because he's, tr- he's trying to sabotage something that was going to benefit him, which I didn't understand. But anyways, we got through it. We had a very successful GoFundMe campaign. Um, all the fans came through, uh, you know, completely appreciate and, and that.
0: You saw where you put the money because you put up videos of stuff being tracked and things being yeah. worked on. It's not like... Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So, you know, Mike Keller, we got to go in the studio with Mike Keller to, for him to track the drums. I got to hire the engineer, Damien Reno to to help produce and get it together, right? Got all that there. We redid some of the guitars because when you put live drums, the feels a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we did some of that, guitars and bass, had Reese Fulber do keyboards on a few songs. And then... You know, we have to pay for Andy Sneap, of course, and uh, to mix the record, and it sounds amazing. I mean, the record sounds like a classic Fear Factory record. So, you know, I had to to do all that. We successfully did it, and then I got to... understand
0: Andy Sneap is as A-list as it gets in metal. I mean, you know, Judas Priest, Megadeth, Testament. I mean, you know, so many iconic bands. Exodus. Best records. Yeah, they're
1: records. Exactly. So, yeah, we wanted that top-notch mixer, the a, like you said, A-lister. And, you know, um, again, we, we, we were very successful at, at accomplishing all that. Um, we hired, a, we got this guy, Francesco Artuzatu. He is yes, the... I
0: know Francesco. He yeah, was in, he is he the was All Show Parish, another band that Kirk Hammett has saluted over the years.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And he's also got his new band called Light the Torch, Light the Torch yeah. with Howard Jones. He's also an artist. I didn't know that. Right. And he created the art for the album cover. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we created the art based off the based off a you know conceptual concept that I'm going for. And we also uh chose I, I chose the more fitting title for the album because the record is very, very pissed off. Right? it's very angry, you know. Um it, it's just one of those records that you're gonna feel the anger in, right? I mean, you could tell, listen to Disruptor. It's, it's, mm-hmm. You mean, it's one of the most heaviest vocals that uh, Burton's done since Soul and Machine, right? So I know a lot of people are asking, like, you know, why didn't you change the vocalist? Like, if Burt quit the band, why didn't you just get him off the record? Well, I actually did want to, believe it or not. and But the record company wanted to keep him on there. You know, they wanted this to be Burt's last... Opus, right? And I agree. I'll say, sure, he did the record. Sure, why not? You know, let's keep him on the there. And...
0: and open a, a new one
1: at the same time. Closing the chapter, exactly. But people also got to remember that at this point, I don't own the record. The record company owns the record. They make the decisions. That's how record contracts work. They own the master recordings, right? So I can't do anything without them. I can't change anything on the record without them. Giving permission, saying okay. So if they say, "Hey, I want this on the record," you know, of course you can argue with them, but ultimately they have the they have the last decision. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if people know that, and people probably don't yeah. understand that. Yeah. So, so, but luckily, Monty. And just think, Connor, if, you, if
0: you if you had replaced the vocals, you would be hearing. It's damned if you do, damned if you don't, because you would get so much shit for that too.
1: People, would say, <laughs> oh, why are you trying Correct.
0: to? erase history why are you getting why didn't you let Bert have his last record what you know it's like there's you you can't please everybody
1: correct and that's something that you have to deal with and accept being in the music industry you know what I mean you're not going to make everybody happy especially in the you know this day and age in the social media world where everybody uh lets you know whether they like it or not you know what I mean yeah um You have to have, I believe, you have to have some sort of thick skin to be able to read that stuff. I know artists that don't like to read it; Mm -hmm. they actually run away from it. Mm -hmm. They, they, you know, um, they just don't want to hear it because they know it may affect them mentally or personally. You know what I mean? Because people say some pretty insane stuff. You know what I mean? Um, so, uh again, I do take fan consideration, but I can't let a fan make my decision for me. I have to make that decision, you know what I mean? Ultimately, you know, of course, I appreciate what all these fans did for us over the years and even the GoFundMe campaign, you know, they really came through and they supported me during that time. So, what my job is to basically make the record as best as it could be, get the right people around it, um get the right people to do the video and to and to, just to get it out to get it out to people and i'm glad that now people are finally being able to hear it yeah and see the, it.
0: ultimately the music is what matters oh, after all the drama all the all the back and forth you know these records we talk about uh you know mechanized obsolete like the records live forever and they transcend yeah. the stories of what was happening or even what tours were going on or which song was the single or what was the you know it's like the the record is what stands the test of time and I, and one of the things i've always respected about you is this idea of you know you will spend money to make money you will you know you you, you, yeah. you take less now in order to have a
1: bigger legacy later you
0: know yeah. to make the record i'm
1: i'm one of those guys that yeah i'm not afraid of sacrifices i mean i'm, I'm willing to eat bologna and cheese sandwiches you know, if it means that I need to use all the money to make a record. right? You know what I mean? And I can do that for a while because I know that what what people don't know are, or the misconception of being in a band, people automatically think that you're rich and you're not, right? Um, you know, financially, you know, the music business is like this. It's up and down. Your record's hot. You can be making some money. You can go on tour make some money. Your record's not hot, meaning sales. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you put out a flop. You could not, you could be starving that year. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's it's up and down. It's a business. You know, people don't like to use these kinds of words when it comes to music, but music is a product. And if your product doesn't sell, you know, it's just like owning a store, right? Or owning a business. Hey, I'm on Shark Tank and I came out with this new sponge that could like wash your dishes really easy. Shark Tank, somebody sees it they they give you a deal right but it flops boom you put your house up for mortgage to, you know you 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 put your, your house up for mortgage and then uh you know you the, the sponge doesn't sell boom you lose your house right yeah. boom you got to go bankrupt boom you like you're like you're living in a small apartment, you know, you're living in a van down by the river. You know what I mean? Van down I mean by the river. it's just, you know, it comes and goes. I mean, you see it in regular life. You know, people, somebody has a good job, COVID hits, boom, you're fucking you're down to nothing. You got to get rid of your house. You gotta go move in with your parents, you gotta move in with relatives. It just happens. That's the music industry as well. Music is up and down. So everybody out there listening to that who think that that this is your instant because you're, you know, I'm a known person. People think because I'm a known person mm-hmm. that I'm going to be driving Porsches and you know, living in big houses. Sure, there were times where you might have had that, but there's times you're fucking, like I said, you're in a van down by the river, and I'm not afraid of that. I don't understand hold
0: on. the overhead re- rises with it, too. When you're correct, gas, you gas prices go tours, up, buses and expenses, yeah, you
1: know. gas prices go up, bus prices go up, crew prices go up. Everything goes up except your guarantee. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so you know, like I was saying before, I can be living in a, by, down, a, a van down by the river or live in the fucking gigantic house. To me, it doesn't matter. What matters to me is what the record sounds like if people can connect with it. You know what I mean? Can it influence other people? Are people going to enjoy it? So the smile that I put on people's faces, that's to me is really what, I enjoy the most. You know what I mean? Amen. So.
0: Yeah. Um, one last thing I want to talk to you about before we wrap okay. up,
1: which is also kind of I, yeah. You haven't really asked me any questions. <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm, <laughs> I'm guiding you. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I know where to take you. You are known for developing a style of playing guitar, a style of picking of palm muting that is instantly recognizable as either someone who's been influenced by you or you, when you hear it, something that comes up on the podcast a lot is I find myself talking a lot about the right hand of Hetfield about his style picking and, you know, just those rhythms and uh, the percussiveness of it and the way that, that, that drives, you know, the, the rhythmic side of what Metallica does and what Fear Factory does, given that you are, so known for something similar, I would love to hear just your opinion on Hetfield's rhythm technique. And, you know, what makes
1: it so powerful and distinct. Okay. I can tell you, and I can tell you, everybody that, everybody combined that influenced me. Sure, it comes from, you know, Angus Young. You know what I mean? That's where it comes from, the chords. Of course, you got your Tony Iommis, right? And that's all that stuff was cool for, for, when I began. But when I, like I said, when I first heard Metallica and I first heard the right hand, I was like, this is what I want to do. So, you know, everybody you get a piece of something from, right. But when it comes to down picking and when it comes to those kind of rhythms, James Hetfield was the man and the way, the way he palm mutes and the way he picks, you feel the power and, and, The way he had his amp set up, the way his guitars, his pickup, all that created this certain crunch, this certain tone that I fell in love with instantly, right? And I was like, to me, that was more powerful because that palm, that palm right there, you know, you can go back to... That's all down picking. Wow. Then... And you had the alternate picking. You're like, holy fuck! How come, the, you know, why did the drums go with that too? <laughs> I'm going back to the drums. I'm going back to the drums. And those rhythms were like, holy shit! Like it was like, I got to learn that right away. I had to learn that. But what I known him, what I known him more for was his down picking, right? And that was really what I took from that, from his picking. And it was very powerful because you felt, because when you do a palm mute, it kind of accentuates a thump, a crunch, like a shoo, shoo, what people call the now, right? Right. Yeah. People call that. I hate the word. I hate yeah. the word. But djent is all
0: Fear Factory, Meshuggah. Like, yeah, it's people took a couple of bands and made
1: whole thing. The Djent is. That's the right? So when you hear James Hetfield and you hear the djent, when you do that, you palm mute it and you do that type of pick, it pushes the air differently from your speakers. Hmm. Right? Hmm. You mean I, mean, I know you're probably looking at it differently, right? But you, no, it pushes I'm, the air I'm, like it, it goes shing. like the, your speaker literally goes, shing, shing, right? Sure, you can go to, you know, you can do an open chord, da, 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 you know, yeah, but when you go, those you know, speakers are moving differently yeah. on yeah. your amp, on your cabinet. And that was something that I recognized right away when he was doing that. I was like, fuck, that's so badass. How does he do that? And then you just kind of like, okay, you kind of find it on the guitar. You find it. I'm like, okay, that's how he did it. Oh, wow. He's doing it more. He's doing it more. Okay, I got it. Okay, I got it. Oh, fuck yeah. Now I know how to do it. And so that's kind of like how I think a lot of people got that from there.
0: And, and you, you made me think of something or realize something. You know, having seen them live as many times as I have and, and watched videos and, and heard live recordings, Hetfield does this thing a lot live in, in the, over the last 10, 20 years, like during Master of Puppets, you know, as one example, where he'll go, Sha! like with his mouth, you know, like, and uh, hearing you describe all that, it's like, yeah, that's what he's doing. He's on that same wavelength you are because he's thinking about that Sha!
1: sound well, that
0: his I, is making and he does it with his mouth sometimes.
1: Yeah, I mean... I mean, you can also hear it um, in, in a different way. You hear the palm muting, like in the song, like Four Horsemen. You know, it's like, he's palm muting there.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And he's making those, he's still making those, no- those notes come through really well. And that's a Mustaine riff,
0: bringing us full circle back to the sandwich shop. Four Horsemen. Yeah, but I think, but Dave, Dave Mustaine played it differently
1: yes. on mechanics. Yeah. He played it completely yep. different. He kind of played it open. Yeah. Kind of played it open, yeah, and faster. No, there was a difference in the palm muting there, big yeah. difference. Yeah. And nuance. I kind of <laughs> yeah, nuances. Don't get me wrong, I love David saying, love that record, but to me it was it was that that part. And then there was another part in the song was it's kind of like that Iron Maiden Gallop mm-hmm. that he did, mm-hmm. but he fucking made it the, the tone and the crunchness and his palm muting gave it more of an attack compared to Iron Maiden, right? Yeah. And it gave it more this what became thrash metal. Mm-hmm. You know Harder, more in- so, aggressive, more intense, whereas uh, Maiden,
0: one of my favorite bands. It was
1: really Maiden's- the tone. It was really yeah. the crunchy tone, the yeah. mid-range, crunchy attack on those amps and those guitar tones and the pickups, whatever he was using at the time. That really... Gave it that tone, and of course, half of it is your right hand and the palm. Hmm. So, yeah, they, I identify with that right away. Yeah. Right away, I've identified with that, and I was like, yeah. "Fuck yeah!" And then right around that same time, I got into metal church and shit like that. But um, yeah, that was when I first recognized it. And just like I said, w- but when he really, when he really crunched those chords and really gave it that shoon hmm, just know that those speakers are moving like that <laughs> shoon, shoon. yes it's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's when you're
0: playing fear factory on a really good stereo <laughs> that's what You're on the, on the speakers
1: pretty layer. much i try to create that to accentuate certain parts for sure yeah, yeah. I, I mean if you're that kind of a guitar player and if you don't know that that's kind of like where that came from uh then i don't know what you're listening to <laughs> <laughs> Awesome, dude. Um, well, this has been awesome.
0: Like I knew it would be. I've always enjoyed talking to you for uh, a number of years now. I think going back to people, people listening to this who don't know, the first time that we met and spent a bunch of time together was when you are in the studio making "Obsolete," uh, which you know to have been able to even witness just a, a small part of that and a couple of days of it was, you know, life changing for me because it's uh, a groundbreaking, important record. So, and you were in a legendary studio doing that too. You guys were in Vancouver at, uh, was it
1: Armory or The Warehouse? Was it? Um, we mixed it at the Armory and we uh, recorded at a place called Mushroom.
0: Yeah. So, you know, all the way back, you've always been uh, very kind and very uh, giving in terms of, you know, you're, you're one of those people that I like to think of as uh, when, we, when we think of metal as a community, you're one of those, and Monty's one of those people too, you know, where, you have that community spirit and there's, and there's very much like an all for one, one for all kind of vibe that you put out that I think is very important to this style of music and, and something I appreciate. So,
1: Okay. Well, just to, just to close things out, I just want people to know that I live, breathe, die for this music, uh, the bands that I'm involved with uh, or the bands I started pretty much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, whether it's us, you know, Divine Heresy or Fear Factory, you know, I give it my all because to me, that's the number one passion for me. It's just making sure that those records sound amazing. You know, Ken, can, I can't live, I can live in a down by, van down by the river, but I can't live with a bad record. It's hard for me to live with that because I'm always going to be reminded of something that I did shady. Right. So I can't live with that. I have to li- I have to live with things that I want to hear for the rest of my life. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And so, that, to me, is what drives me to try to be um, that kind of uh, person who really loves what he does and his craft and just that passion, that drive that I have for that kind of music. Uh, my guitar playing or songwriting or just tones and mixing and all the above. So we have a new record coming out June 18th. It's called Aggression Continuum. An Aggression Continuum just means... Uh, that I am going to be continuing this style of music, the aggression that is fear factory and the continuum that is that means I'm going to continue, right? So that, and the record is very pissed off. So to me, that's a very fitting title for the record. The album cover has a cyborg that's shaped like an FF, but really it's got like an X. This is the first time I'm saying this. So it's like an X, it's got an X form. Mm-hmm. And the X represents ten numeral numeral numeral, okay numerical number ten right I I can't even say it right Roman numeral so Roman numeral ten and so that is our because it's our tenth studio record so all that means something right and you used to say
0: in interviews that you and Bert were like the number (laughs) ten so
1: there's I did. yeah okay i get it i was a fat guy he was a skinny taller guy you exactly. said that not me i'm going to... exactly yeah because <laughs> we would call our our tour manager john brennan his name's nickname's wedge he's very thin yeah and we had it. a merch girl we had a merch girl she was very thin and when they would walk down the street we would call them 11 <laughs> so cool. yeah
0: but yeah so the x is there this is the 10th fear
1: factory album Which is, yeah, so a lot of people don't understand that. Like, oh, why is the FF with the legs open? You know, people have asked that because if you look at the cover, I'm not sure if you're going to show the cover or not, but you see it, there's an X there, and that represents 10 for the 10th studio record. And I mean, that in and of
0: itself is an achievement. And I also think that it's cool for you to acknowledge that it's the 10th record for you as a fan of music and a fan of bands where, you know, Sabbath, where we've had. Different members over the years and all that. You acknowledging the ten records because you're acknowledging
1: a couple of records you're not on. Dino. Correct. There was two records that was not on: archetype and transgression. And uh, yeah, definitely recognize them because they yeah, are, they are it's, in. The, it's part of the legacy. Yeah, it's part of the legacy. Whether bad or good, it's part of the legacy.
0: But yeah, well, Dino, I'm so happy that you're finally able to get this record across the finish line and get it out there, and that people are are hearing it and responding to it and liking it.
1: So, regardless of people who. Are you know uh, uh, nervous or a little um, concerned about me continuing Fear Factory? Just so you know, you know it's not going to change. Sure, we're going to have a different singer. Sure, there might be different elements, but I don't fear change at all. If I feared change, I wouldn't be able to do what I did from the beginning. I wouldn't be able to create what I created. If I listen to all the doubters who said, why the fuck do you have clean vocals on a record? Why the fuck are you doing industrial techno dance remixes of your songs? You know what I mean? If I believed all those doubters, then I wouldn't be able to to push this sound forward or be creative. You know, I can't let people stop me from being creative because that's the one thing I do have is creativity. So I'm not going to let those people deter me from doing what I need to do and doing what I want to do. And I believe that I'm going to continue doing what people want to hear. So, um, because that's, because that's how I'm going to make it.
0: Yeah. And that's the Metallica model.
1: People complained
0: that there was a ballot on ride the lightning <laughs> and people complain that kill them all. Didn't sound like no life to leather, you know, every, every step of the way, there's always somebody. And if, if you let that get in your head and if, if you let it deter you, then, think of all the great stuff that that doesn't happen you know
1: so with that with that being said go to fearfactory.com we have all the different uh pre-order stuff you could buy vinyl cassettes t-shirts cds what's that but cds (laughs) and um and just everything fear factory go there and uh you have access to all of it
0: yeah and you're and you're curating the legacy now too so there's going to be all kinds of stuff down the road right with
1: well i always felt that, that i was clearing records. the legacy you know after i created the legacy <laughs> yeah. um you know from uh you know when i came back at the band during the mechanized era i was like fuck that i want to prove i want to you know i don't mind proving people wrong because i think that's part of the what pushes you or mm-hmm. what drives you so i don't mind proving the doubters wrong as a matter of fact i enjoy it you know kobe bryant was the same way you know, everybody used to say he was a ball hog. Everybody used to say, you know, um, why don't you pass the ball? <laughs> but look, look at the legacy he created. Uh, he knew yeah. if his team, he knew if his team was slacking, he could take over and make it happen. And that's kind of like where I feel like I fit in, where, I, where I'm at right now. I'm taking over the team, and I can make it happen, no problem. Awesome, dude. Well, that's
0: a perfect Thank spot you. to
1: leave it. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure talking to you.
0: Of course, man. Likewise. And uh, we'll talk again soon.